Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me again for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And today's question is, should everyone learn to be a teacher? Now, that may seem sort of odd, but I hold to the idea that in some way, shape, or form, we're always going to be teaching. And I have with me today Cal Seedon President Mark Rushduni, who began his adult life career, first and foremost, as a teacher. And I asked him to join me today to discuss a little bit about the whole idea of being a teacher and why it's good for people to learn how to teach. So, Mark, thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Andrea. It's good to be here. So, when I said you started your adult life profession, I imagine when you were younger, you had other jobs, but... Is it correct that your first occupation or profession was in the field of teaching? Yes. I, I taught for three years right out of college. I actually returned to the high school from which I graduated in Virginia and uh, taught there for three years. I taught from sixth grade through high school, mostly high school which was a difficult job for someone right out of college. I don't really recommend you start with high school. Why would you say that? Well, I was about three years older than some of my students at the time. <laughs> that just made it a little more challenging. And junior high is actually a very difficult age to, to, uh, to teach as well. The high schoolers will listen a little bit better Junior hires very often are at the age where they're cynical and not even interested in listening. That's interesting. Now, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are homeschooling parents, and some of them have had previous teaching experience and others have not. Do you think it's something about that age that makes the teaching process more challenging or do you think it has more to do with the experience of learning that the students have had, let's say, in elementary school? There are many factors, and it depends upon the teacher or parent, teacher, and the student. And homeschooling presents its own difficulties, I think. And part of it is that uh, it's that attitude of, oh, come on, mom, or, or you know, it's just dad what are we doing here? Really? It's difficult sometimes for students to see their parents as in a formal sense, especially if they've gone from a classroom situation. If they've never known that, that's not as much of a problem. But going from a classroom situation to a homeschooling, a lot of students just don't think it's even possible and it's not going to last long. And so they come into it with a, a negative attitude. Right. Now, one thing is true if you've done any teaching is you can teach, but you can't make other people learn. They're two separate dynamics. So with your experience, primarily in the junior and senior high, knowing that you come in with 
certain deficits, either people are going to compare you to previous teachers they've had. How important is it to um, learn your students yourself before you attempt to teach them? Well, all students are different, and it's important to fig- try to figure out how your students learn, uh, what their weaknesses are, what their gaps are, because it's a real inclination, particularly if if you're teaching older students or if you have new students coming in for any reason that you're not familiar with, they may have a huge gaps in their learning. I, I found this was particularly true regarding uh, English grammar skills and math skills. It's great to want to have them excel at a particular level with other students, but if there are gaps there, it's important to understand what those gaps are because those gaps can mean they're guaranteed to fail unless you backtrack a little and are willing to work with them where they're coming from. So right. each individual, each student is an individual. And I think that's the huge problem with uh, graded education is there's this inclination of this is where you are and this is where we're beginning and this is where we have to go. And some students get left behind. And we know there are students that really can't functionally read in many schools. And yet, then what they are trying to do as they go through that graded school is figure out how they can uh, get through by faking it. So the student is trying to accommodate himself to the system rather than the teacher really identifying the student's needs. Some people would say that um, it would be virtually impossible for one teacher, even with 15 students, to be able to identify the strengths and weaknesses of each student. And then you talked about a graded system. So how much should teachers in a day school and then translate it to a homeschool rely on the curriculum and be wedded or tied to that curriculum rather than instead of teaching the curriculum, you teach the student? Well, I have to say when I taught, I was certainly inclined to say, this is what really needs to happen this year. But the longer I taught, the more I came to realize that that old expression of reading, writing, and arithmetic were absolutely crucial to good education. And that if you had a mastery of a mid-elementary reading, writing, and arithmetic, you could be an educated person. Much of what we see in the textbooks say, in junior high and high school level is sort of a summary of what experts have determined you should be talking about at any age level. And much of that can be learned later in life. And many students who don't have fundamentals, let's say of English grammar, they can't actually diagram a simple sentence to expect them then to do creative writing in high school is a huge mistake. 
So the longer I taught, the more I realized that it's better to have a fundamental grasp on the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic so that you can be self-educated. Because if you can read well, you'll, you, can catch, you can and will catch up. So let's first talk about the Christian school. So the Christian school has as its focus, as your father wrote extensively and spoke extensively, on communicating to students the truths of God's word. And that rather than preaching to students, the Christian school should be teaching students that every area of life, every area of thought needs to be governed by God's word. So keeping that as a focus as to why a lot of people would put their children into a Christian school, deciding that a public school was no longer acceptable, it almost sounds like you can guarantee that those children are not going to be at grade level. So would you suggest that the Christian school focuses on building those fundamentals, establishing that foundation, so that rather than do it by age, you are assessing where the student is actually at? Absolutely. We hear a lot about the one-room schoolhouse. A lot of schoolhouses in America were one-room, two-room, sometimes four-room was considered something for a larger community. And you did have grades there, but the grades were more of a level of accomplishment. And we need to see more work on how that really took place and how that education took place. Because rather than a strict graded by age, and that's one of the problems with a graded school, it's often graded by age. And modern educators in the public school very much want to socialize kids and keep them with their age level, no matter how far advanced they are or uh, in arrears they are on their education. And I think this then becomes a real ministry of the church in general. I've always said, having taught my own children how to read and helped others, that there's nothing quite so exciting is as when a student connects the dots and they go from struggling to decipher the words to actually reading. And if you haven't ever experienced, there's quite a high attached to it because suddenly these black marks on a white paper mean something. And I think that if people sought out within their congregations or their community of believers and made it their priority to help students who are struggling in this way with the ultimate goal of being able to read the scriptures, that it's something that if you can read, you can teach other people how to read. Right. And uh, I think that's the beauty of the, the uh, phonics. And Sam Blumenfeld did a lot of work in that area. He wrote a book, How to Tutor. We talked about the possibility when we repented it uh, at Calcedon, uh, whether we should change the title. We did not change the title. It's really not how to tutor, it's how to teach. He explains why you teach things the way you do, why you teach phonics, why you teach cursive, which is anathema to many modern educators. And he basically taught the teacher why we do this. And then he did the methodology in his alpha phonics 
you can learn how to be a teacher by reading his book, How to Tutor, and you have the mechanisms in his uh, alpha phonics as to how to teach uh, phonics. But you have to have the basics. And uh, this is what the problem is with graded education. And parents are very much leery of putting a child too far back in remedial work. They don't like the idea of remedial work. And they want the child caught up where they are, but that isn't always easy. And sometimes, and then too, part of the problem with the small school is uh, you don't have the staff to do a lot of remedial work because sometimes it takes one-on-one -on -one training. But adults can be taught to read in a matter of months if they if they are are taught properly. It does not take years to teach someone to read. And tremendous progress can be made very quickly. I went to public schools until I was uh, in third grade. We moved from a town that did not have a Christian school before I went into third grade. In third grade, I, I by the way, I was a creature of the Dick, Jane, and Sally books. It was that era when Dick, Jane, and Sally was everything. And I grew up with the Dick, Jane, and Sally. Now, a lot of people don't even know what that is today. It was, high, it was sight reading, and you repeated the words over and over again. So you had stories that would read like, Oh, Dick, see Dick, see Dick run, see Dick run fast. And it was this over and over and over again, very simple words repeated. And there wasn't really much phonics uh, public schools have always said they taught phonics but they just didn't have never taught it systematically and uh so i grew up with that until i was in second grade and i was very much behind now some by the way i should i should add here some students if you teach them wrong they'll pick it up on their own i had a niece who learned to read before she went to school because her sisters taught her how to read and she mm -hmm. picked it up from her older sister and she knew how to read before she went to kindergarten. Some people can do that. So even in the public schools, no matter how bad their, their methodology is, some people will pick it up. The unfortunate thing is many people do not. Well, right. when I went to third grade, I went to a Christian school and they, I was in the lowest, they had combined class. I think it was uh third, fourth, and fifth grade in, in one classroom. And I was in the lowest reading level, but that was an advantage. Something like the uh, one-room schoolhouse, they grouped people by their reading level, which was a huge help. Instead of being, being put where I was age-wise, they put me according to my reading level, which was quite low. And by the end of the year, I was in the highest reading level. I think one disadvantage I've always had uh, from my beginnings is that I've always been a slow reader. So I never really was able to pick up the speed on, on the readings. Well, it's interesting that you say that because it is true. There are people who kind of figure out the code. And it was even Sam Blumenfeld who would stress that intensive phonics builds the phonetic reflex. But then after a while we all sort of transition into being sight readers 
because we're familiar on how to decipher the language. And I'm thinking of the fact that I come from a family that my father was born to Italian immigrants and they learned to read in school. But the reality is that back then, and we're talking, you know, 19, he was born in 1911, there still had not been the full transition to the, the, the Prussian model of education. And he would often talk about it was in public school that he learned the Lord's Prayer. It was in public school that he learned Psalm 23 and the Beatitudes. And people were concerned that their children, not that they wouldn't maintain their language, so he spoke Italian fluently, but they wanted their children to be fluent in English. And so it was not uncommon to put children into the same kind of reading group or even speaking group that you're talking about. And as you said, they catch up. Today, we have people who are so concerned with self-esteem. I remember talking to a woman once who said, I want my child to be in fourth grade, even though I know age-wise that's where you know he would normally be, but he's really not up to there. So could you put him in fourth grade and let and just do the second grade work, but I don't want him to feel like he's behind, as if somehow lying to a child is beneficial. Yeah, there's a great stigma, and that's one of the problems that you can avoid in homeschooling is a child doesn't know the difference between a fifth grade curriculum and a second grade curriculum. He doesn't have to be constantly aware of the fact that I'm in a different book than some of the people of my own age. Right. But, but regarding the, the fact that, that we are all sight readers, once we learn words, we begin to recognize them instantaneously. You've probably seen some social media of late that has circulated where somebody would, would post, uh, I believe in, mandatory vacations, but everybody would read it, including myself, mandatory vaccinations, right. because your brain wants to make that con connection. When you see mandatory and that V, your brain says mandatory vaccinations. And people would respond to comments. I can't believe you would say this. I thought you knew better. <laughs> And they weren't reading it carefully. And then you go back and it, sure enough, it says, I believe in mandatory vacations, but the brain immediately wants to make associations. So yes, there is such a thing as sight reading, but sight reading depends upon being able to sound words out. Ideally what you want, and this is something I was told me a long time ago that I always remembered about phonics. You want a student to be able to read words they cannot understand. And that's a hallmark of a good reading program. I can remember uh, someone telling me uh, their, their child, when they were very, very young, they pulled up behind an ambulance in traffic and the child read emergency because they were trying to sound out that, that, that word that they were reading and they could work, they were mispronounced it, but, they could read that word emergency, even if they didn't understand what it meant or how it was normally uh, uh, pronounced. That's what you really want out of reading. You want them, you should be able to read words you don't know, if you, even that you don't know what they are. 
And that's that's the key, what what phonics does because you can learn the meanings of words after the fact. I'm still look words up in the the dictionary to make sure I I, I get something right if I'm not clear on someone's meaning. If they use a, a an archaic word or a rarely used word, I'll still look it up on my uh, smartphone very quickly to make sure I'm getting the sense of what they're saying. But right. I can read I could read it even if I don't know what that word means or I'm not sure. Exactly. And I think so that we have the ability to read, the ability to figure out how to pronounce it. And then, of course, you want to focus on reading comprehension. And so good training in reading is to ask the student, okay, can you tell me what that means? And, you know, coming back to it. But something that you said earlier about adults, many who are illiterate or functionally illiterate, do so much better than children because a lot of the adults have used the words that they're not able to read. And so they can move much quickly, much more quickly. And I've had the opportunity to teach adults who finally had to admit, look, I can't read. Will you be willing to help me? And interestingly enough, Mark, I used alpha phonics, which was great because it didn't have pictures of ponies and daisies. It just was the mm -hmm. words and the person built up the phonetic reflex. And years later, he told me he was reading Martin Luther's works, which sort of was like, wow, look at that. All you had to do is help somebody get started, and then they continue on their own with a love of learning. Sam Blumenfeld didn't like uh, pictures because he felt it was actually distracted the child from what you were trying to teach. And they would guess if there's too many pictures, the child wants to guess what the word is based upon the pictures. And so their mind is constantly going back and forth between looking at the picture and what this word is supposed to mean. And then they guess. And right. Is, and sometimes the word is horse, but it looks like a pony and they say pony and it has nothing to do with the actual word. And so the time you spend early on helping a child learn to read. Now, I have talked to people who've acknowledged not everybody can do phonics well, but that doesn't mean you stop trying. You might find other ways to encourage them to do it, but I think the takeaway here is don't lose the opportunity to build the foundation of the house. Otherwise, no matter how fancy it looks, it's not going to be stable or able to resist, you know, the things that might make it weaker. Right. And there are some people who have, uh, people have different ways of learning. And some people have uh, various reasons why they have trouble with one method or another. But, but phonics over the last few hundred years has taught many, many people how to read. And there's, there's no other system that has done as much for as many people uh, in the educational process as a strictly phonetic approach to reading. And one thing that Sam really made clear is that whereas there might actually be people who are dyslexic, in other words, reverse the letters, et cetera, when they're reading, by and large, it's bad teaching that produces dyslexia. And that if you teach systematic phonics along with teaching cursive. And some might, some people might say, how does cursive help that whole endeavor? Well, people constantly say, well, my child doesn't know the difference between a B and a D and confuses them. 
Well, a B and a D in cursive look very different, and they're very unlikely to be confused. And as the child starts figuring that out, that translates to print work as well. And so rather than decide that we have this whole nation of dyslexics, what we really have is a nation of people who weren't taught properly. Right. And the same is true in other disciplines. I, I mentioned reading, writing, and arithmetic. We've been talking about reading, but um, in writing, which in, includes all of the, the grammar skills, the basic parts of a sentence uh, are very important to development. And now that is, that's not taught very much anymore. And we have a, an increase in literacy. It's not just because of the inability to read, but people can't write as well because writing is part of literacy as well. And we can say, say the same thing about math skills. Right. Uh, we're, we borrow some of the worst ideas of the public schools. And one of the problems of the public schools it, regarding math skills is that they did not want to cause children to have to memorize uh, math tables. And that's totally crippling because all math requires a knowledge of the basic math facts. And if you don't have a mastery of the basic math facts, and I know this from my own education, I was a little bit behind on those for many years. I, I, I resisted learning them. And there were a few, you know, in the sevens and, and nines that I would, I was always a little fuzzy on. And I always told myself, you know, if I just go back and I learn those, it would save me a little bit, you know, frustration. And uh, it was really one of the most rewarding things when I was teaching school. And I taught in a Christian school, never had large classes. And I when I taught in Chalcedon Christian School for a number of years, then I, I taught mostly a combined uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade class. And I could group students there according to their math levels, because sometimes I get a new student in and they should be in a seventh or eighth grade, uh, but their math skills were so lacking that I put them in with the sixth grade. And one of the most rewarding things I saw was the fact that these children could master skills. They thought they couldn't do math. They hated math. They got terrible grades in math. And they actually could do quite well in math. And once they got the basics down, understood a few things, then they could actually become quite advanced in math because the concepts aren't that difficult, really. And there's one thing that, that amazes you when you when you think, boy, I struggled in school. It just it took me all these years to learn these things. And you realized, you know, it's it's not that much that you really have to learn. But part of the problem with children is they often aren't too cooperative in the desire to learn. Some right. students can pick things up in a matter of days that it takes other children weeks to really master. And that's what an advantage of homeschooling is focus on what they need to learn, not getting through X number of lessons to get there. You know, it's funny um, when my children, all of whom were homeschooled, when we would do sports, either in church leagues or Y leagues, they always wanted to do it according to grades and, and people would ask them what grade they were in. And I'd always have to tell them, okay, this is the answer. You are in this grade 
because as you said, sometimes they were in one grade for language, sometimes they were in another grade for um, grammar. And so uh, I had to tell them just, and then they would always forget since we would continue school oftentimes through the summer. By November, people would say, well, what grade are you in? And my daughter would say, I'm going into, and I'd have to pull her aside and said, in November, you don't tell people you're going into because you're already supposed to be there. <laughs> so sometimes homeschoolers have to learn how to do the jargon and the, 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 the accepted answers in the culture in general. I don't know. I don't think, I'm not sure any of my children would be able to give you a, a quick answer to when they graduated from high school <laughs> to, to you and I, that, that is a, a, a year that's fixed in our consciousness that we can't forget. Uh, they're not sure <laughs> because all of my children started taking college classes as part of their high school curriculum. And so they had at least a year or more of college at the local community college of college credits uh, by the time they were officially a college student. Right. So they're not even sure what year they graduated from high school. Right. So when somebody writes their biography or they write their autobiography, <laughs> I guess they're just going to have to pick one. Yeah. But I think this stuff is important because a lot of parents who had maybe not considered homeschooling with the lockdowns because of COVID and because of what they actually started realizing their children did or did not know, that they really need to understand a biblical philosophy of education. And you mentioned grammar. Well, Sometimes people joke that I'm the grammar police because in grammar, you want the subject and the object to agree in gender. So you would say he went to his party. But nowadays, because the whole gender transgender uh, discussion has happened, people will have he went to there or you're talking about one person, the person went to their home, which grammatically is incorrect, doesn't make sense if you bring it down to, you know, what exactly is being said here. But now you have people choosing their pronouns. And some people think, well, it's no big deal, but it's a huge deal in terms of what things mean. And so right. parents need to learn how to teach that grammar has got to be consistent with a biblical world and life view. My, uh, the, my uh, principal, who, the owner of the school, the first school I taught at, told me that uh, an attorney once asked his son to testify. His son was still in elementary school. And he said, there's a question of what this sentence and phrase in the, in the, I think it was a statute or something. What does this mean? It was in question. And he, they got my, uh, the, this elementary school age student up there and says, if this was sentence was given to you, how would you diagram this sentence? And so he diagrammed the sentence for the court as to how he th thought grammatically this was, was supposed to be understood and what was subordinate to what because that was at the point in question in this particular case and 
that's the advantage of understanding the basics because now this idea um, is that anything can mean anything you want it to be. I mean, we've done that with our constitution. Modernists have done it with the Bible. Uh, it, I, I, there's a name for it, deconstruction in, in modern education. It's that things mean what you, you need them to mean at any given time. We're deconstructing our history and we're rewriting our history. Grammar can be used in any way that you see fit. We need to get back to the basics if we're going to have any hope for any kind of a relevance to the future. This isn't going to last. It can't last. Right. So I started off by saying everyone should learn how to teach. And I've given my perspective on ways in which people as believers can help other believers and help them once you discover and encourage people to say if they struggle with things like reading or other areas of their education, because a lot of people who go through public schools emerged with poor educations. Not everyone had the benefit, and I did. I went to private schools all the way up through high school. And so by the time I was called upon to homeschool, I could still do my algebra. I could still do the diagramming of the sentences. And it was a testimony. I always tell people I could homeschool effectively because my parents saw to it that I got a good education. Well, that shouldn't be a cop-out for people to say, therefore, I should not homeschool. I think the body of Christ can help each other out very easily by those who can to help those who need to learn. But apart from that, no matter what you do in life, if you're a doctor, if you are an engineer, if you work as a salesman, if you administer um, an office or a business, you're always going to have to be involved with teaching people. So let's talk about that in terms of how a Christian should embrace the idea of teaching no matter what it is he or she does. Okay, well... Um, we Teaching is is something that's basic. In fact, uh, I remember years ago reading that a tremendous amount of educational work had to be done by corporations when they hired people, that they had to do their own training, and that uh, educational degrees and such were often used as a screening process because they said, well, there's a minimum uh, accomplishment there, but they basically had to teach the perspective, the new employee, the basics of their new job. And I've always thought it would be a good idea if more companies just did this on a more, uh, a, a more directly and more overtly in training people. And I, I think the uh, faults of the public schools could be obviated a great deal if uh, more industry, large industries were able to do that in a systematic way because this is the way people are practically trained. It was something that's been notorious for a long time is that if you, a lot of the computer courses that you take in school are taken by professors who are some years behind on computers because they've been in academics while the world of computers moves forward very, very rapidly. So if they're out of uh, the, the new technology 
even for a year or two or three, they're, they're, what they're teaching in the classroom is already outdated. So that's an area where uh, industry can be far more advanced than uh, any college can in their educational activities. One of the things I always say, if you're going to learn anything, and I mean anything, you're going to learn a sport, you're going to learn a language, you're going to learn how to do a particular task, it's always best to learn from someone who loves what he or she does. And I always made that a point if I was going to get an athletic coach or a music teacher or whatever I was going to parcel out to someone else for my children. If the person didn't love it and the person wasn't committed to it and, and almost lived, breathed and died it sort of thing, I didn't want them to be the one to introduce the subject or to, um, you know, mentor my children because you don't know exactly what God is going to have someone do. But so many people, and I actually talked to one of your students who had you in high school and she made the comment, Mark, that she hated history until she got to your class. And she said, you made it relevant. You would bring in aspects of your own life, things that you misunderstood, but then came to understand. And to this day, she said that when she has a choice to read things, it's history. What you're talking about is the difference between teaching as an art and teaching as a science. There's a methodology to teaching. There's a lot of things you can learn as a teacher, things that work and things that don't work. But ultimately, teaching is an art. And that's why early on in the Christian school movement, people would ask you, well, what are you using as a curriculum? That was the first question they, they would want to know. What's your curriculum? And a good teacher can work with a bad curriculum, but a bad teacher is only going to do so much with a good curriculum because it's much of it is the teacher and it's the presentation. An example of how that works is if you're going to teach creation science, then you end up having to teach evolution as well. You have to teach the bad along with the good, because why, why are you teaching something that's different without explaining how it's usually presented and what they're going to get? Because they obviously get evolution on television programs and movies and articles they read just about everywhere. They get this evolutionary perspective. So you have to say, well, this is what you're normally going to hear. If you look on a sign by the side of the road, they're going to take a, talk about the geology of this era and how it's taken millions and millions of years. And so you have to explain this is what this is a different perspective. And it's not just the methodology. And this is one of the problems that we have with a lot of people thinking that if the right curriculum is going to make the difference, it's not. And you have to just connect with the student. And sometimes that's very hard and sometimes it's not, but it's, it's, and, and, and students are different. And I've had some students that have just frustrated me <laughs> to no end. I, was, I, 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 I still wonder about some of my students as to what they ever, you know, got from my classroom because they really resisted learning. And some of it was, uh, you know, character factors, like some, I've, you know, frustration of any 
teacher is a very lazy student who doesn't want to work, doesn't want to think, doesn't want to do any assignments. Uh, that's very frustrating. But you have to under, try to understand your students and where, where they're coming from. And that's why a lot of times when I taught, a lot of people probably wouldn't have been impressed with my teaching style because when I had a small class, sometimes I would only have six, eight, ten students. I would sit at my desk and talk to them. And it's the same thing when I preach. I, I don't get really pompous when I preach. And I don't speak too differently to a group than I do to an individual because I'm trying to communicate. Right. And when I grew up, I, I went to fundamentalist Baptist schools. And you get a fundamentalist Baptist some of whom were my teachers, they get up in chapel and their whole persona would change because it was, and I, in high school, once we had a vocabulary word that I thought perfectly describes it. And I said, yes, I know what that means. And the, and the word that we had in vocabulary that were was histrionic. They were histrionic, artificially dramatic once they got in the pulpit. Some people like that style. They expected of preachers. I just didn't think it was a very good method of communicating. Right. And I didn't think a real formal style in the classroom was particularly helpful uh, either. So I just talked about the things in their science book. I, uh, I talked about the history and, and the fact that this was, you know, this was someone's life. So I'm not sure if I was a great, you know, history and science teacher or not, but it was just, it had to come, be genuine. It come, had to come from my personality and not be artificial. And I, I hope well, I at least accomplished that. Right. Well, I can tell you that some of the adults who were also teachers or administrators had told me that they would often stand outside your classroom and listen to your history lesson or whatever you were, you know, talking to your students about, and they loved doing it. So you might not know that that happened, but apparently it did, and more than once. Well, I'm glad. I think I also got in a little trouble with some people, though, when they thought that my history lessons were sometimes touched a little too much on politi current political issues. So I'm not sure how that walked that, that line carefully. I did try to make them relevant, but uh, when it came to history, I think liberty and the preservation of liberty is an important theme, and I probably came around to that a lot, maybe a little too often. Well, I don't know. I guess we'd have to talk to your students and find out where they are today. But, you know, we're coming to the close of our time. With the Calcedon Teacher Training Institute, which started back in 2008 as a way in which to help homeschooling families learn how to teach. And of course, I would always start them on your father's book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, because if you don't have a solid foundation in the faith, you're going to have a difficult time teaching any subject. But uh, I've recently pursued the idea of students who are done with their high school 
curriculums, you know, whatever they finished. And sometimes their families are not ready to have them move into a college setting, that it would be a great opportunity for Christian schools to have some young people come in and get the opportunity to teach and interact with students and maybe be those people that would help get those students that are struggling up to speed. And I've always thought that homeschooling students would make excellent tutors because they um, have such a good foundation. And then on top of that, when a lot of parents suddenly were now in charge of their children's education, you know, there were all these ridiculous memes on, oh, I'm homeschooling. It's a good thing I have my third glass of wine. And what those people were doing wasn't really homeschooling because homeschooling is so much more of a lifestyle than it is a nine to five kind of thing. But that uh, at Calcedon, we're interested in helping people who want to learn how to do that. And I would um, say to anybody who's listening who says I could use that help, um, you go to uh, the calcedonteachertraining.com and there's ways to contact me. And I have not only myself, but there's a lot of other homeschool veterans who would be very willing and are very able to help in that pursuit. So I hope we can do a lot to help in that regard. Great. And, and you mentioned student teachers and such. One of the, the important things I think in my upbringing that I came to think was very uh, important was that periodically we had to get in front of the class. It may have just been to you know stand or come to the front and recite your Bible verse or something. But that gives a student a hugely different perspective when they're standing in front of people than they get so accustomed to being added behind a desk as one of just a number of people that they lose, they don't have, they don't learn how to address people. It can be something as simple too as if a good reader reading to younger children. But learning how to teach and learning how to communicate to other people, or at least in front of other people, such as reading a composition to a class, uh, is very, very important because a lot of people get to adulthood and they've never stood in front of a group. You know, I have a friend who's an attorney, and he said if he had to do it over again, he would take many more speech classes and even go into um, some drama clubs and act in plays because he said you'd be amazed at how many attorneys do not want to go into the courtroom because they don't have that experience. And those are the ones who usually settle cases out of court. And the ones who have had that experience um, are less reluctant to pursue all avenues of helping their clients. Yeah, a lot of teaching is just communicating, and you have, to, and that's part of uh, something that you have to learn to communicate in in a different context, not just saying something and answering something from your desk, but in front of a group. And learning how to, if one way isn't working, that to find another way. And I often joked and said with my first two children who learned things rather quickly, I had this idea that I was a great teacher. When my third came along, she didn't learn the same way her older brother and sister did, and that's where I became a teacher. 
And interestingly enough, when it came to um, who could retain things better, because I had to put that kind of emphasis with her to make sure she understood, she retained things that I later discovered with the older two. I had to bring them back because they got good at pretty much parroting what they thought the answer should be. And so I had to learn how to discern whether my student actually understood or had just figured out a way to, you know, approximate an answer and that was going to be good enough. So learning to be a good teacher is a real growing experience and it helps you in a lot of ways to be a good evangelist because if you're talking to someone who's not of the faith, what are you going to do? You're going to teach them about Jesus Christ and their need for salvation. Right. Well, thanks, Mark. I hope we have um, inspired some people to look into the idea of becoming a better teacher. And I have to say that as someone who's worked with you for decades now, the exposure you had to teaching other people and appreciating uh, the extent of your father's work has made it so that uh, you realize how important it is to keep his work in print for a generation of people who want to learn. And so I know I'm not alone in being very grateful for how you've stood at the helm of Calcedon. Thank you, Andrea. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us again. You can always reach me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.